If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn with me once again to the Gospel of John. If you're visiting with us, we have been working our way through the Gospel of John, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We're going to look at the first half of John chapter 12. For months now, at least in our time and place, in our time and space, years in reference to John's time, we have been following the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. He is now approaching, as we get to this point in his life and in the account of John, the last week of his life on earth. And as we come to chapter 12 this morning, we in a sense, and I think this is helpful just for you to kind of gain your bearings a bit, particularly in the weeks to come, as we come to chapter 12, we we kind of come out of light speed or warp speed. And what I mean by that is, remember, John has an aim in this gospel, right? His aim is that, that you might know that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you might have life in his name. And so John is not so concerned with maybe like Luke, who wants to give an orderly account, John's not so concerned with this kind of chronological, very even, very metered account of Jesus' life. Obviously, none of the gospel accounts are comprehensive. None of them include everything that Jesus said and did. But many of them have more than what John did, or at least have a little bit more of a rhythm to them than John has. And so what I mean by coming out of light speed is simply this. We've covered the first 11 chapters of John. Those 11 chapters took place over the course of several years. As we come to chapter 12, chapter 12 will take place over the course of a couple days. Then as we go into chapter 13, chapters 13 through 18 take place over a couple of hours. And so we're kind of really, we're slowing down the narrative, John is slowing down the narrative as we approach the cross of Christ. So that helps you just give your bearings a little bit for the weeks to come. And today we come into the home of Simon the leper to a scene that was also recorded by Matthew in his gospel and Mark in his gospel as well. We're in the village of Bethany, which is just outside of Jerusalem, two miles outside, and it's been about a month since Lazarus was raised from the dead. Remember, at this point in Jesus' ministry, he is a wanted man. He's been judged guilty without even a trial. The Jewish authorities are out to rid themselves of him. They're actively plotting how they're going to do that, trying to figure it out, which is why Jesus left. But he will enter Jerusalem once again, Head there soon because, as the gospel writer says, he sets his face towards Jerusalem. And it's not that Jesus has some kind of a death wish. It's that he knows what he came to do. And he knows what the will of the Father is for him. And as we looked at last week, nothing can thwart, nothing can frustrate God's plan. And so we're close to the end of Jesus' life. Tomorrow, at least in this narrative, he will ride into the city to the waving of palm branches. That's a few weeks away for us in terms of our church calendar and celebration. But today, through this extraordinary act at a very ordinary dinner party, we're reminded of what kind of king 
Jesus came to be. This is one of my favorite stories. I love this story. Many of you know it well, but let's listen to it again. John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Follow along if you would in your Bibles. And would you stand for the reading of God's Word? John chapter 12, verse 1, where we left off last week. Reading down through verse 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom he had raised from the dead about a month earlier. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those who was reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used it to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. It's no doubt that Mary's actions here at this small dinner party are stunning. But I'd like to argue that they're even more profound than we might first think that they are. Two truths that they point us to this morning. Two truths that I want us to embrace and meditate on. And the first one is this. Jesus is the final true Passover lamb. Jesus is the final true Passover lamb. It's two days before Passover. There are sheep all over this town of Bethany. Lambs, to be specific, thousands of them. They're innocent bleeding in the air, giving them away. See, they're getting ready to celebrate one of the great celebrations in the Jewish calendar. We've talked about it before. Jerusalem and the surrounding villages around Jerusalem would, would swell this time of year and at other times of year. But this time of year was a particularly special time in the life of God's people where they commemorated and celebrated Israel's deliverance from Egypt all those years ago. If you know the Bible, you remember the story. How can you forget? As a kid, it's one of your favorite stories. All the plagues, the craziness of what Yahweh brought upon Egypt through His servant Moses in an attempt to loosen Pharaoh's grip on His people. Plague after plague after plague. And Yahweh finished it with telling His people that there was wrath coming upon the children of Egypt. And to escape this wrath, the Israelites, in obedience to Yahweh, had to put blood above their doorposts that the promised death might pass over 
their house. It was an act of faith, this killing of an innocent lamb and spreading this lamb's blood over the doorpost. It was an act of faith, but it was their salvation. That's the backdrop of Jesus finding himself here in the house of Simon the leper. Jesus is there with his closest friends. This is a a pre-Passover meal of sorts, a thank you dinner party probably. John seems to imply that Martha specifically and Mary and Lazarus indirectly, they're, they're giving Jesus this evening. They're putting this on for him. They're serving him because he has done them the ultimate service that no one else could do. He has raised their brother from the dead and brought him back to life. Oh, to have been a fly on the wall of that night. It's kind of fun to speculate what the conversation might have been like. Maybe Lazarus recounted the experience of dying and then suddenly opening his eyes and being raised back to life, smelling his own grave clothes and must of the tomb. Maybe there were questions about Jesus, for Jesus about his future and about exactly what went on in Jerusalem and what's going to happen now. But John and the other gospel writers, they only record one section of this evening, just one section. But it's an event that's so extraordinary, that's so meaningful, that here we are thousands of years later talking about it, just as Jesus said we would. And it all centers around Mary, the sister of Lazarus, the sister of Martha. Now we've met these sisters before. One, Martha, she is presented to us in the gospel accounts as one who is busy, right? She's eager to serve. She's eager to work. And Mary, on the other hand, seems to be more uh, contemplative. She's eager to listen. She wants to just sit and soak and, and learn from Jesus. And it's Mary's preoccupation with, with listening that seems to show itself here and make it evident. Because she knows something, at least she seems to know something, that no one else in the room is getting or no one else is thinking about on this relaxing evening. And that is that Jesus is soon going to die. Now, to what extent Mary understood that, I I don't know. We'll have to ask her in glory. But it seems that she, by virtue of the Holy Spirit, I suspect, gets something here that the others don't. I mean, Jesus had been telling his followers for years throughout his ministry and even in the hours before this stop at Bethany that he would have to die. That he would, like a criminal, be handed over to the Roman authorities and that his life and his ministry would come to an end. That this was his purpose. But they didn't get it. He was their teacher. He was their friend. He was the long-awaited Messiah. Nothing could touch him. Have you seen the things that he did? I mean, his talk of death just didn't compute in their minds, I don't think. Except, it seems, for Mary. 
And again, I don't know what was going on in Mary's head, but let me speculate. Quite possibly, this is how her thinking went. There she is, enjoying Jesus' presence, His friendship, and it dawns on her that if Jesus is going to be executed, who, who knows how they're going to treat His body? Especially if He's a criminal. It'll be the hands of the Romans. Maybe they won't even allow a proper burial for their friend, Jesus. See, Mary, Mary loved this man. She believed his words, and he had done already so much for her and her family. And so at some point in the evening, Mary gets up, and she retrieves a bottle of perfume that was her absolute finest. Perhaps she had been thinking about this for some time, and had set this aside, and had saved it for just such an occasion. We don't know. But she returns to these 15 men who are reclined at the table, and she pours, wipes, this incredibly expensive ointment all over Jesus. It's quite the scene. Matthew and Mark say that she put it on his head. John says that she put it on his feet, which leads us to believe that she probably did both. She probably just put it all over him. These men, probably in stunned silence, as she is wiping this ointment on the Lord Jesus. Just as you would prepare a body for burial, Mary takes 11 to 12 ounces, so think like a, like a soda can full of ointment, and pours it, wipes it, all over Jesus' body, his head, his feet, and everything in between. She isn't crazy, but she isn't bashful either. She understands what these men seem to be missing, at least in this moment, that Jesus is the true Passover lamb. The lamb who came to be slain the Lamb who came to give His life. And brothers and sisters, this is what John wants his readers to see so clearly. This is the good news that we must never forget. This is the Gospel that we must align our lives with. Just like the innocent Passover lambs, Jesus shed His blood in order that we might remain unscathed. The sacrifice of the innocent one allows the wrath of God to spare those who trust in Him, those who hide themselves in Him. And so what it means is that Jesus didn't just come to be a good moral teacher. He's more than that. Jesus didn't just come to do lots of good stuff in lots of lives while He was on earth. He's more than that. He is the true, final Passover Lamb. He is our only escape from death. And this, friends, is what we must embrace. This is what you must look to. You must look to the Lamb 
It's the first and fundamental thing that John wants us to see this morning through Mary's actions. But there's a second. And it flows from the first. Jesus is worth everything. Jesus is worth everything. Now some of you have heard me tell this story before, but that's what you get when you have a pastor that's been here for 15 years, 14 years. You get some of the same stories. When my wife and I were in college, I was broke, but I was in love. And so when the winter banquet rolled around at our school, I needed money for two tickets, but they were expensive. And I didn't have any money. But I heard about something that was happening in downtown Chattanooga, Tennessee. And so I called a ride with one of my friends to downtown Chattanooga to the blood bank down in Chattanooga. There amidst, I'll admit, much of the homeless population of Chattanooga, I let them stick a needle in my arm, hook me up to a machine, that took the plasma out of my blood. It's an easy way to make money. 20 bucks, I think, for every plasma donation. So I had to do it a couple times, maybe three times. When I think back on that story, when I've told that story before, it's a little bit crazy. But you do crazy things when you're in love, don't you? In the same way, when you know and love Jesus, everything changes. The Puritan Thomas Brooks says this, Christ is a jewel worth more than a thousand worlds, as all who know have Him. Get Him and get all. Miss Him and miss all. The psalmist Asaph felt this way about the Lord. He writes in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You see, not only do Mary's actions convey Jesus' ultimate purpose as the final true Passover lamb, anointing Him for burial and for death, She also displays for us in the most vivid of ways Jesus' incomparable worth. Of course, that word worthy, Revelation 5, remember what John saw in this vision that he's given of heaven? They sang a new song to the Lamb. What did they sing? Worthy are you! To take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And of course, Jesus himself spoke about the value, the worth of the kingdom, of following him in the parables that he spoke about. Remember the parable of the treasure found in a field. In that story, each man was willing to do whatever it took, all that they had, in order to acquire that which they knew they couldn't live without. You see, Mary understands this. That Jesus is worth everything. And so she shows it to us in at least three ways. 
and how much she gives in the focus of her love and in the abandon of her reputation. So let's close with those three things. First of all, her wealth. This gift that Mary gave to Jesus was, we would say, over the top, right? We've already mentioned the size of the flask of ointment. It was quite a scene. But Judas brings up the monetary value of what is being expended here. Pure nard was imported from Israel, excuse me, into Israel from the Himalayan mountains at great cost. And so a flask was apparently worth about 300 denarii. Now a denarii is a day's wage. So when you do the calculations, we're talking about a year's worth of wages. So conservatively, $20,000 worth of perfume she dumps out on the Savior at this night. What a waste. Judas is actually the one who leads the criticism. Mary, you aren't using your head. You've gone too far. How useful that could have been to so many. Why waste it? And Jesus stops them and says, leave her alone. She's done a beautiful thing. In other words, I'm worth it. And I'm about to show you vividly as I die for you. And she gets this. See, ridiculous grace creates extravagant love. Mary loves Jesus. Judas loves money. His heart's not only not with the poor. John tells us that. It's on what he can skim off the top of such a gift. And it's ironic then that he will sell Jesus to the authorities for just a fraction of what Mary pours out on Jesus here. See, the extravagance of the gift tells us that Jesus is worth everything. But then the focus of her love shows us this. You see, it wasn't in doing anything for Jesus. It's simply in declaring His worth. His worth. Worship. Jesus highlights this fact when He says in verse 8, you will always have the poor with you and whenever you want, you can do good for them. Don't get me wrong. Jesus was all about the poor. And He wants His followers to be about the poor. But the heart of the Gospel is not about doing things for Jesus. It's about recognizing who He is. It's about worshiping His worth. It's about valuing Him above everything else in our lives. And then finally, maybe the most striking part of this scene is how Mary shows That Jesus is worth everything through her reputation, through the abandonment of her love. Right? It's almost as if Mary lost herself in the the worth of Jesus. You got to realize this was an intimidating scene in which she did this. Right? This is a group of, of godly men who are gathered together with her Savior in a culture where men and women weren't treated equally. And and she derails the whole night. 
She derails the whole scene. She derails whatever conversation was going on. And it comes to a screeching halt, I would imagine. We read in verse 3, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped it with her hair. Could there be a more lowly display of honor and love and affection and abandon? See, Mary is essentially saying, I don't care what any of you think. This is between me and my Lord. And I understand who He is. And He's worthy of my deepest devotion. And I don't care. I'll bring myself to the lowest point. Forget about me. Just look at Him. She's essentially being a fool for Jesus. No airs about her. No pride. She's not doing this for show. If anything, she's going to be ridiculed as she was. She's put fear of man beside. And she just goes for it and worships the one who is worthy. Jesus is worth everything. Giving it all away sitting at His feet, swallowing our pride, doing that for the sake of following Jesus, it seems like it's the death of me. It's the death of us. Exactly. Exactly. Jesus said, if you want to save your life, you've got to lose it for me. And so as I was thinking about this passage again, the challenge came to me, and I convey it to you again this morning. How is the seriousness and sacrifice for this treasure of Jesus showing itself in your life? Right? You, you have found him, or, or maybe more accurately, he has found you. So now, does your life with him, does it consume you? Is your life orbiting around Him and around His kingdom? Or do you go days? Six days even, without even thinking about Him. Without even spending time with Him. You see, Mary and her example, Mary and her devotion, Mary and her abandon reminds us that Jesus is worth everything and amidst all the flash of our world and all the world of our flesh we need to pray for the grace to make christ our treasure because he's worth it as the psalmist prayed in psalm 119 verse 37 turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Beholding and, and cherishing Christ for the treasure who He is, it's a lifelong pursuit. No one's arrived. Everyone's working on it. Everyone's failing. But it's a life that recognizes only in the Lamb who came to die, only in the Lamb who is worthy of everything, will we truly find life, both now 
and forevermore. Amen? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your servant Mary, our sister in Christ, and this incredible devotion and abandon that she showed to our Savior while he was here on earth. Thank you that she conveyed to him such deep love. And as I think about my own life, as we think about our own lives, we are shamed, I fear, at the lack of abandon, at the lack of boldness, at the lack of devotion that we have towards our Savior. Oh, Father, may this word this morning remind us, remind us anew of the wrath that we have avoided because of the true Passover lamb and the worth of our Savior. And may our lives increasingly align and conform with the one who came for us, the one who died for us, the one who was raised to life for us. Oh, Holy Spirit, use this in our lives, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.